0: Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan.
1: And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week we'll bring you an in-depth interview with prominent historian Ilan Pape about his new book, Israel and South Africa, The Many Faces of Apartheid. Ilan Pape is the author of many books on Palestine, including his seminal work, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. He is also a professor with the College of Social Sciences and International Studies at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom, as well as director of the university's European Center for Palestine Studies. Ilan Pape, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's always great to have you with us.
2: It's a great pleasure to be in the studio, to have yes. any conversation through telephone. Forza, <laughs> sa- Forza saída, as we say. <laughs> yeah, Indeed.
1: As has been dramatically and tragically demonstrated since the onset of the so-called Arab Spring, peoples of the Middle East and North Africa have been caught between a rock and a hard place, between the plague and the cholera, the plague being foreign occupation at the hands of Israel, the U.S., etc., on the one hand, and cholera subjugation in the hands of native despotism, Allah, Mubarak, Assad, Saddam, etc., one disease feeding and justifying the other. We've seen Israel bomb civilian neighborhoods in Gaza, and we've seen Bashar Assad, and before him his father, do the same with the same hatred and same cruelty to his own people. In a recent talk, you spoke of a Zionist logic of elimination and dehumanization and made a connection between that and what Assad has been visiting upon his own people since... 2011. Tell us more about how you see that connection.
2: Yes. I described Zionism as a settler-colonialist project. And settler-colonialism, as your listeners probably know, is the movement of Europeans to non-European lands in the search of a new home, in fact, in the search of a new homeland. And the major obstacle for settler colonialists, wherever they were, whether here in the United States or in Palestine, were the indigenous people. They stood in the way of turning a new home to a homeland. In most cases, this problem was solved by what one of the great scholars of settler colonialism, uh, who just recently passed away, Patrick Wolfe, called the logic of elimination. Namely, you needed to eliminate the natives, either by genociding them, in many cases, or by ethnically cleansing them, as in Palestine, to make them disappear. Because part of your belief was that you will always be challenged for your claim to the homeland if the natives would be there or would be there in any position to claim what is really and justifiably theirs. I also explained that because so many of these groups who formed the settler colonialist projects, including the Jews who came to Palestine, were usually people who were themselves persecuted. They were themselves victims. That's why they chose to leave Europe. They needed to dehumanize the natives in order to justify the horrific solution they had for their problem. So, in many ways, the victim became a victimizer through this process of dehumanization. Now, I think that the Middle East itself, before the arrival of Zionism, did not experience these two logics. Definitely, there were cases of bloodshed, there were cases of wars, there were friction, but all in all, if you look at the 400 or 500 years in which the Ottoman Empire ruled that particular part of the Middle East, these kinds of logic were not working. They were not there. I think Zionism introduced them. This was one contribution to the violence of that kind that would ensue later on. But far more important was the fact that in the case of Zionism, this was licensed by the international community after 1945. So the message to the Arab world was, that there are cases where logic of elimination and logic of dehumanization uh, can be not only accepted by the West, but even described as part of a democratic setup, a civilized nation, and so on. And I think that this is something that was very well learned by certain Arab rulers, and even by those people who oppose them, like the Islamic State because they said, you know, we can use these logics either to protect our regime or to topple the regime because it seems to be an acceptable form of human behavior. All you have to do is to find out whether you can be the blue-eyed boy or son or child of the West. And I think that's the connection. I made it clear that I don't think it's the only reason. Mm. It's not the only reason why... We see the horrific scenes that we do see today in Iraq, in uh, Syria, in Yemen, and Libya. Of course, there are other reasons, and Western imperialism has a very important role to play in it, and one should not absolve Arab regimes and Arab societies from that violence either. But I think the particularly inhuman side of it, as you pointed out, the idea that you can use air force to bomb a civilian resistance, That you can use gunships and gunboats in order to quell positions that in most other cases at least would be confronted with police forces, not by the military might of a nation state or an imperial state. In that respect, the barbarization, the barbarization of the use of state violence in many ways was introduced by uh, Israel to the Middle East. After 1948.
1: As it was certainly by the French in North Africa and I'm sure in other places by other colonial powers. Not that uh, those places were virgin of violence before those happenings, but it was certainly ramping up whatever had preceded.
2: Absolutely. If you think about it, what other case you had of massive expulsion of people in the Middle East before 1948 you had the one case of the Armenians, yes, well, definitely. Yes. It should be mentioned in this context. But within the Arab world, however violent or troubled were the relationship between communities, people used to return back to the countryside, used to return back to the home. Which uh, they
1: tried in Palestine after forty-eight.
2: For them, it looked very logical. Mm. Okay, there was a battle, there was a war, there was violence. But the idea that you can change dramatically the political nature of a place, to change its identity by massive expulsions is something that the settler-colonialist project of Zionism introduced, I think. And as always in history, the next and third versions are far more brutal than the original. That's also a rule of history. Mm -hmm. And it's not surprising that the Assad regime would go further than the Israelis, and those who would fight the Assad regime can go further than the Assad regime, as we can see Mm -hmm. sometimes. But that's the inevitable kind of trajectory that you have once the tool itself is introduced and legitimized.
1: And when comparing what happened at the hands of the French colonial empire and what's happening as we speak in Palestine and around Palestine the hands of the Zionists, uh, you point out a very important difference, and you're very careful to always use the word settler before colonialism. Explain to us that distinction that you would see, for example, between the French in Algeria and the Zionists in Palestine. Yeah,
2: Probably the best way of explaining this difference is to remind ourselves of a very interesting dialogue that took place between the very small group of anti-Zionist Jews inside Israel and intellectuals and thinkers on the Palestinian left in the 1970s. The anti-Zionist Jews understood something that these Palestinian intellectuals at that time failed to see, that Zionism is not colonialism but settler colonialism, namely if the Palestinians wanted, and they wanted in the 70s, to adopt the FLN, the Algerian National Liberation Movement, as a model, it means that they also adopt their plan as a model, namely expelling the French settlers from Algeria and pushing them back to France. And like other liberation movements, the colonialists have somewhere to go to and should go there. So part of the solution or part of the decolonization was getting rid of the colonialists themselves in a way. And the anti-Zionists said we are much more impressed with the ANC as a model because the ANC takes the settler community as part of the reality – but just claims that this settler community has to live under different conditions mm-hmm. and has to have a different kind of relationship with the natives. And there's a certain act of rectification, compensation, redistribution of resources that has to be done in order for that particular kind of decolonization to succeed. So I think it's important, especially today. I'm not sure what I would have said in the 60s had it been a Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would still hope that most of the Jewish settlers, especially after the Holocaust, had somewhere to go to. Mm. And that would be the best solution because of what they were doing to me.
1: And get back your house. And uh, get back my house. And your land.
2: Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I think, especially in 2016, this model is not going to work. We understand it. As uh, the Palestinian intellectual Asmi Bishara says rightly, when you have a third generation of settlers, they become an organic group. They can be a very nasty organic group, but they are an organic group. Namely, whatever you think about the term liberation, it has to include them. And I think neither the Palestinian liberation movement has fully digested this fact. Mm. Not surprisingly, it's not that easy to digest the idea that the settlers with a century of oppression should be a legitimate part of who you are, although I think a lot of Palestinians already are there, and it would be very difficult for the settlers themselves to understand what decolonization means, and that's why they also have to be told about settler colonialism, because otherwise you have liberal Zionists, even liberal Zionists who would support the one-state solution without realizing what it means. Mm. So they would say, okay, you know what, everybody would be equal, between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean. And you say, no, no, the whole structure has to change. Refugees have to return. Resources have to be redistributed. A different kind of relationship has to be framed. It doesn't work from today to tomorrow. Mm. That already happened. Israel is today one-state solution, Mm -hmm. an apartheid one-state solution. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't change by just saying, you know, the slogan. So I think settler colonialism is such an important paradigm that frames the reality in a way that not only explains to us very well what the Zionist project is all about, but also gives us some hope, a more clear direction of how can it be replaced by a more just regime and a more democratic and equitable kind of political system that would work well for everyone.
1: You know, I'm always struck as I know more about, by reading your books and others, about the parallels and differences between what happened in my country, Algeria. I was born a colonial subject. Yeah. And what's happened in Palestine is happening as we speak. I'm always struck by the number of parallels that keep piling up, one of them actually being this third generation, it reached five in Algiers. Mm. The French were there for 132 years. So they were also an organic part of the landscape. And unfortunately, there was a total divorce. But the little asterisk I wanted to add, and it's more of a another parallel rather than the contrast, is that actually the program of the FLN, unbeknownst to a lot of people who remember what happened as a result of the war, of independence, the program was not for expelling the colonialists. Mm-hmm. That, that is true. The program was to assimilate them, again, ANC style, everybody being equal, etc. Of course, there would be some redistribution. The so-called French was really a bunch of Europeans and some native Jews, too, who had been assimilated too, That's right. to the colonial 10% of the population would have to redistribute. But it wasn't a program of actually expelling people into the sea. That was never part of the...
2: No, not the, to the sea, of right. course. And about, or, or to, uh, to France. No, not even to France. Right. I'm just saying how the Palestinians understood the FLS, yeah, yeah, You're absolutely it. Right. right. In fact, in Exeter, we have a program, a cluster, which is called Settler Colonialist Studies, And we include Algeria in it. So academically, we include Algeria in it exactly for the reasons that what you are saying. But politically, in the 70s, well, maybe not in the 70s, but today definitely, Mm. it is important to send a message of the relevance of the ANC as a model because it comes with the whole baggage. It's not just the ANC. It's the baggage of the apartheid. What didn't yet happen in post-apartheid South Africa is also a lesson to us, yes. not just what happened successfully, but of course all the successful struggle to topple apartheid down. And so I think there is something in the commonality between the settler-colonialist project of the whites in South Africa with the settler-colonialist project in Palestine, which is even more powerful. In fact, the Zionists very early on said very clearly, we are emulating, we are building our model on the South African case. They had very good connection with the white supremacists in South Africa. They admired them. And in many ways, they gave them a lot of ideas of how to solidify the settler-colonialist project of Zionism in Palestine. And maybe this is kind of an historical coincidence, but the telling one, that the year apartheid became an official law in South Africa is the year that the Nakba happened. 1948. Mm-hmm. In fact, both projects used the Holocaust in order to justify their actions in 1948. Even the, uh, South African? Even the South African by saying, you know, we are uh, under danger. We are under danger and we have to protect ourselves. Because we're a minority? We're a minority. I see. Yeah, because we're a minority. Mm-hmm. And both were exempted by a United Nation and international community That said, everywhere else, we would like to see decolonization. Everywhere else, the Americans said, we are not supporting British and French colonialism. The Americans didn't support, at least not officially, French colonialism in Algeria. But they said, well, Palestine and South Africa are different. Mm. They are not colonialism. There are uh, redemption, there are white people who have rights, and they are under danger from the non-white people who refuse to legitimize them, and we have to help them, and so on and so forth. So these were very important parallels. But you're absolutely right. As I said, when we teach settler colonialism, the Algerian case study has a lot to teach us about the Palestinian case study and as you know in 1956 one of the reasons the french and the israelis could so easily collude with the british trying to topple nasser down was that the israeli fully supported the continuation of french colonialism in in algeria and in return had a total free license from the french to continue and colonize palestine so The parallels are important and should be highlighted.
1: Even Menachem Begin, I remember in 1981 when uh, Israel was bombing Beirut and the prime minister back then, Mitterrand, dared to voice his alarm. He actually said, I'm sure you remember, he actually said in response, he said, the French are jealous of us because your Arabs beat you and we're beating our Arabs.
2: Arabs, yes, I do remember. So he made that (laughs) parallel very plain. Yeah. It is very interesting that I think there is a connection between the fact that France has not yet had a closure to its Algerian chapter, definitely did not have a closure to its behavior during the Second World War. This is one of the reasons why France is the only country in Europe that has official legislation against the BDS. I I think there is a connection. Mm -hmm. There is a connection between how you behaved in the Second World War, what kind of colonialism you had, and your willingness to protect even the 2016 Israel that obviously is not a very easy case to protect even if you are a cynical European politician.
1: So, Ilan, again, as I was saying, I grew up in post-colonial Algeria where virtually every social and political ill was explained away as legacy of colonialism a narrative meant to maintain and power non-democratic regimes. And yet, as we've witnessed the past few years, not every catastrophe is attributable to colonialism past and present. Absolutely. When it comes to the question of Palestine, there have been two opposing visions among some Arab intellectuals. One positing the Arab world can only become free and democratic once Palestine is free. The other saying the opposite, that Palestine will only become free after the rest of the Arab world mm-hmm, itself mm-hmm, is reformed yeah. and acceded to democracy. You say that Palestine is still the issue. Explain to us why even in the midst of the chaos currently obtaining the Middle East and North Africa region, in your view, still Palestine is a central issue, not a secondary one. Zionism right now must feel comforted in its racist portrayal of Israel as a villa in the middle of a jungle.
2: Yeah, definitely. First of all, I think that the two options that you mentioned, whether a free democratic Palestine would democratize the Arab world or a democratic free Arab world would democratize or decolonize Palestine. I think history tells us actually that the relationship between such two scenarios are dialectical, Mm. meaning that they are not two separate processes. These are processes that feed to each other. And any progress on one arena affects a progress of a certain arena. And in this respect, Palestine is still the issue because it is part of the obstacle, kind of set of obstacles that really disable a genuine conversation about human rights and civil rights in uh, the rest of the Middle East. The real core problem today in the Middle East, however you look at it, is the issue of human rights and civil rights whether it is violated by regimes or it's violated by opposition movements that oppose the regimes. The issue is the basic rights of people to live, to express their views, to live the way they lived always. You know, the kind of things we had in the Middle East, quite admirable, a way of live and let live kind of culture that has been totally destroyed, first by the colonialist powers, by pitting groups one against the other, and then by Arab regimes themselves who found that such a system does not benefit them. And like Franz Fanon told us, post-colonialist regime can be as colonialist as the colonialist regime they have destroyed. Now, within this context, in order to have a genuine conversation, as I understand it as an historian, you cannot have exceptionalisms. And Palestine is still the issue because of its exceptionalism. And its exceptionalism is very deep. You know, people in America would immediately say to me nowadays, because they know a little bit more, they would say, yes, but also Saudi Arabia enjoys exceptionalism. And I said, yes, but I'll give you an example what the difference between the Zionist exceptionalism, which I think contributes to the disability to solve the problem. I don't think it's the only source of the problem. I already described why Zionism is part of the inhumanity we see. My worry is that it prevents us getting out of that inhumanity because it's exceptional. But let me just give you an example about Saudi Arabia. I said you can write 10 articles a week, not seven, 10 articles a week in the New York Times about human rights violations in Saudi Arabia whatever the official American position is, nobody in the New York Times would reject an article that comes very hard on the issue of human rights in Iraq, in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, doesn't matter where, Mm -hmm. even countries with supposedly American allies. Mm -hmm. Try to write a similar article on Israel and you won't be able to publish it.
1: Try writing 10 of them. 10 of them, yeah. (laughs) Let alone. So, So
2: this exceptionalism means that if you don't solve the Palestine issue, if you leave it as it is, it is very easy for anyone you want to convince. And part of a constructive dialogue to change situation of human rights and civil rights is convincing enough people to participate in the dialogue. The American idea that you can bomb from the air people in order that they would accept human rights is so pathetic and dangerous. But but this is the American way, and the British have adopted it, and so on. This is the lunacy of the West. You bomb people to make them respect human rights and civil rights. If you think about it, it's so illogical. So you need to convince people to help people to get into a serious conversation. Now, people immediately in the Middle East would point to Palestine and say, but we understand that in this conversation, you will not include Palestine. And they wouldn't. The West will have a conference on human rights in Paris. This never includes Israel. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. You know, I checked it. It, Never. The only group that does put Israel as part of it is the the United Nations Council of Human Rights, which the American, the British, everyone else in the world regards as an insignificant, ridiculous body that has no teeth or significance. So I'm talking about significant bodies. Mm. They would never include. And people in the Middle East said, so where is the conversation here? Whether these people are Bashar Assad or people who might have criticized Bashar Assad from the inside, whether these are supporters of the Islamic State, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I think that Palestine is the major obstacle that you have to remove to give a chance for a different Middle East. Again, to make a different release, you need to change many other things. It won't be enough to change the nature of the regime in Palestine, Israel, but you will not have any chance. Zionism would have the international immunity it still enjoys today.
0: That's prominent Israeli historian Ilan Pape in conversation with Khalil Bendib. Ilan Pape is the author of many books on Palestine, including his seminal work the Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. He's also professor with the College of Social Sciences and International Studies at the University of Exeter in United Kingdom, as well as director of the university's European Center for Palestine Studies. His latest book is called Israel and South Africa, The Many Faces of Apartheid. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
1: You have just edited a new book discussing the parallel between South African apartheid and occupied Palestine. Ever since Jimmy Carter broke the taboo, that has more openly become an issue, and the burgeoning BDS movement has certainly seized upon this analogy to help inspire and energize their movement. Tell us briefly where the parallel between these two movements, Zionism and apartheid, is strongest, and why, despite the limitations of this parallel, it's still a useful connection to make.
2: Absolutely. The purpose of the book was to say to activists, it's very clear the level of activism, the parallels are striking. I myself, individually, but a lot of my colleagues as well, were very supportive of the student initiative to call the major activity on every campus in the world in support of Palestine, the Israel Apartheid Week. But we are also academics. We're not just activists. And we thought it was very important to tell the, especially the young activists, when you do this, also understand the differences, not just the commonalities. And the differences, I always say, they're a bit like what Desmond Tutu used to say when he came to visit Israel and Palestine. He said, I met Palestinians who lived in conditions which were much better than those Of the Africans under apartheid, but I met many and many more Palestinians who lived in conditions which were worse than apartheid South Africa. And that kind of spectrum of Israeli apartheid is important to understand because that spectrum provides the shield of immunity we talked about before. Because you can always point out, especially when you have a discussion with liberal Zionists, they're not lying when they point out to certain lighter aspects of the apartheid in Israel. They're not fabricating it. It's there. Mm-hmm. But they never tell you about the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. And the whole spectrum takes you to darker points than even apartheid South Africa. And I think that was part of our purpose, to provide the activist with accuracy so that they will not fall into a trap of ignorance. Because mm-hmm. if you're ignorant about it, and you deny the fact that there are certain rights that Palestinians inside Israel have, and certain way of life that they have, and you will deny it by saying, you know, no, it's not true, it's exactly like apartheid South Africa, you lose the argument. But if you are familiar with the whole spectrum, and why Israel has this kind of spectrum, for what purpose did it build it, which is a very sinister spectrum, it's not a spectrum of between goodwill and badwill. It's a spectrum that is meant to protect the continuation of the Zionist settler-colonialist project of colonization in Palestine. So that was the first reason, I think, that it was important to make these comparisons. But the second was, for me, is even more important when I discussed it with a publisher. And by the way, it was very difficult to find a publisher. Really? Uh, Very difficult. I really want here to... Commend Z for their courage. It's amazing how people are still afraid of this. But in any case, the second thing which is connected to this timidity is the fact that I am really surprised that still in 2016, when I look at all the academic programs in the West, wherever they are, and I ask myself, where does the history of Israel being taught within a larger context? In almost all of them, it's a case study of Western history, of European modern history, of the history of democracy, of the history of liberalism, the history of capitalism, socialism. There are many courses in the West about the history of colonialism, ethnic cleansing, genocide. It does not include it that. Does not include that. <laughs> and the second purpose of the book, I did it because I wanted to provide the first initial reading <laughs> list for the brave academics who would include Zionism within a major course on colonialism, on ethnic cleansing, on imperialism, whatever context. And I thought it was very important to show the historical commonalities, which are very clear, the religious commonalities, how Christianity and Judaism were used or had enough in them, put it this way, to justify apartheid. And this is important in the age of Islamophobia to show that you can easily use Christianity and Judaism in the same way that you use Islam, because part of Islamophobia is to say, but It's only Islam that can provide these quotes from the Quran or the Hadith that would justify, I don't know what, doing terrible things to the Yazidis. Well, there are enough quotes from Judaism and Christianity that would justify the same thing. And these two political projects of South Africa, white South Africa, and Zionism are the proof for that. That's another commonality. And, of course, I think with all my criticism of what happened in post-apartheid South Africa, There's so much to be learned from the struggle, Mm. from the tenacity of the struggle, from the way churches were used as part of the popular resistance to apartheid. I don't see mosques in Palestine being used like this. I hope they will be used like this. So we're talking in the book also about it's a really like a forensic examination of the liberation movement in South Africa as a kind of history lesson that tells you a lot of what still can be done in the case of Palestine, to make the liberation project of Palestine in 2016 make it a successful project.
1: Notwithstanding the American left's general refusal to acknowledge the hegemony of Zionist power in the U.S. and in the West when it comes to Middle Eastern policy, the backlash against any show of sympathy for the Palestinian causes become so fierce here in the States that certain academics and intellectuals have become virtually unemployable. Witness what happened to Professor Norman Finkelstein, Stephen Salaita, et cetera, who had to exile themselves, as have you, from Israel to remain gainfully employed and safe. Even here in Berkeley, by far the most welcoming locale for Palestinian rights in the United States, it has been a struggle. Elsewhere in the West, in countries like France that you are mentioning, it's illegal now to preach in favor of BDS. And yet, right across the British Channel, there seems to be enough breathing space for someone like you, not only to obtain an important position in a major British university, but to express yourself freely. Would you have been able to find an equivalent opportunity at a major university in the U.S.? And if not, why not?
2: First of all, I really have to use this opportunity to say again that I'm in a very unique university. I could take your question a bit further Mm. and ask instead of you, would other British universities allow you that kind of freedom? And the answer is not. Mm. I'm very lucky. It's not only luck. I chose that university because it had a very good record of freedom of speech, and I felt that they would be steadfast. And they had to be steadfast. How
1: are they funded?
2: The university is a public university, but it has funds from the Arab world, which helps it Mm -hmm. to withstand uh, Zionist uh, lobbying. Mm. But it has also, almost in a kind of a California laid-back way, a very sensible way of looking at freedom of speech. They really don't understand why people cannot compare Zionism to colonialism. They may agree or disagree, that's not the point for mm. them. The point for them is why this is not a legitimate question. Right. Forget about the answer. Why is it not a legitimate question? And I think they're very unique in that. It comes from a very good place. But I have just to tell you that they are being exposed to pressures from very high up in the British government through the Zionist lobby from the moment I was appointed. There's a constant pressure on them to get rid of me. And I'm not sure how secure I am there because universities are not bricks and mortars. They're human beings. The particular human beings who run the university are very democratic. They're very open-minded. And by the way, not all of them agree about the BDS and so on. So it's not ideological affinity. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of an old traditional... Principled. principled position on freedom of speech, which is apparently lacking in American universities. And I'm coming to American universities. I think there was something in the success of the BDS that we have failed to see where it hasn't been successful yet. And that explains the case studies you're talking about of people who are not able to teach. Universities are made of two kinds of bodies. And especially in America, this distinction is very, very strong, and now it unfortunately affects the rest of the academia in the world. There is the management that deals with money and power and politics and has its own idea of what the university should be like. And then there is the body of faculty that have a different perception of what university is all about. There is no doubt, and it would have been very surprising if not. It wouldn't be like this. There's no doubt that the vast majority of people who are academics, especially in humanities and social sciences, cannot see themselves supporting Israel. So their rejection of Israel has maybe degrees of strength and conviction, but not in principle. And this explains, by the way, the success of the BDS to move from one academic society to the other. And now we are in the midst of voting for the American Anthropological Society, which I hope would follow the models of the others, and I'm sure they will, by the way, to continue. But there is the management, and the management acts like political elite. And I think it's important to see the parallels between the difference between the position on Palestine among civil societies in the West and the position of their political elites. The political elites do not represent democratically the ideas of most people on Palestine. Now, the reason is very simple, and the Israelis are aware of this. They're losing. I'm very optimistic, I must mm. tell you. They're really losing it because you cannot use F-16, bribery, intimidation on civil society. You cannot. You cannot force a moral issue through bribery and intimidation.
1: But you can do
2: it with political management.
1: Right. You can can, do it. You can fire them. You can stop funding. Exactly. You can stop
2: funding. You can tell them they will not be elected. They're only interested anyway in short-term political dividends. They're not interested in what happened 10 years from now. So this is where the Israelis find it successful. Why are we witnessing a vicious Israeli attack on the leader of the Labour Party in Britain, Jeremy Mm -hmm. Corbyn? Because it's the first time that someone slipped through their hands who at least officially is part of the political elite. I mean, don't underestimate the importance of the position of the leader of the opposition in the British Parliament. That's a powerful, both symbolically but also in political terms. It's a very powerful position. And he was not elected by chance. There was an overwhelming vote for him mm-hmm. with a very clear agenda on Palestine with a very clear idea. In fact, he would be the first to say that one of the reasons he became so popular was because he was so clear on Palestine. Mm. And this is a red light for the Israelis. That's why they're doing horrible things in England to try and assassinate his character and undermine his position. Because apparently there are people in the management now, and I hope this would also affect the universities, and I'm sure it will one day, that say we cannot support Israel anymore. And I think the firing of people, I hope, are the last battle over the universities, not just as body of faculties, but also as political bodies of management and finance. I hope I'm not over-optimistic, but my feeling is that like politicians, sometimes they are convinced not because you've given them strong moral reason to change their mind, but because it's not electable anymore. It's not. Beneficiary anymore? To
1: a lesser extent, we've seen some of that in this country with Bernie Sanders.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Who was never really famous for his engagement in Palestine, but has been courageous during this campaign. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Should be commended for that. Of course, what he says mm-hmm. to people like us sounds a bit too little and too late. But we have to take it into a context. Exactly. We have to take it into a context, and I can see it in Europe too. Zionism always benefits from. Certain, to my mind, temporary, I call it historical distraction, that people without profound analysis uh, mistake them for Zionist successes. I'll explain what I mean. In Europe, Zionist official spokesperson of Israel can say to themselves, oh, Palestine is not the issue because everybody is dealing with a refugee issue. Or Palestine is not the issue in America because everybody in America is worried about the Islamic State. This, I think, is misreading. Temporary historical development and not understanding that these are temporary distraction from a trajectory that they have no power to stop. And that trajectory is that in the age of Internet and knowledge and activism and a younger generation that is very conscious and very committed, they have nothing to sell. They have nothing to sell. They rely on the Islamic State (laughs) to be the distractor rely on the problem of the refugees from Syria to distract people from the moral issues of Palestine.
1: They're out of ammunition.
2: Out of ammunition. Exactly. (laughs) They don't even use anti-Semitism anymore. That was overdone anyway. It's It's lost its fun. It's so difficult to sound optimistic because from here, I'll go back to Palestine. And the young students in Bizet, they would probably would listen on the internet to this interview. And they would say, why have you been again so optimistic? You know nothing has changed in Ramallah. Nothing has changed in Halil. And everything is actually worse than it was. And I would say to them, yes. In Julius, Halil, you mean Hebron. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so people, won't think you're talking about. <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the <laughs> Arabic uh, name for Never Hebron. Hebron yes. yes. And I would say to them, you're right. I fully understand your desperation uh, frustration. But, and frustration. But believe me, there is an historical process that is working in your advantage. The fact that you don't see it on the ground is, is sad, is worrying, by the way, because it means that you are in for another year of horrific things. But at least you have to draw some courage from the fact that these are processes are real. First of all, we're not imagining them. Mm-hmm. We can prove them. Yeah. They are real. And they are moving ahead. And steadfastness in this respect would lead us all to see the results, if not in our lifetime, someone else's lifetime. Yes,
1: The movement of history. The, Absolutely. The cliche, but it's true. When you see a country like the United States that 50 years ago officially was discriminating against some of its own citizenry. Exactly. That's no longer the law. As We still have problems, but we're going in the right direction. France, a lot of the countries that are also melting pot are also moving in that same direction.
2: I told a group of impatient students in Santa Cruz that they don't understand how much America even has changed. I told them 15 years ago I couldn't talk in any campus in America. I just couldn't. And now there isn't one campus where I cannot give a talk. And I just wanted to tell them, you know, you describe something which is true, which is very depressing and kind of uh, annoying. But you have to see in the historical process. Things have changed from the time when in the campus to mention the word Palestine was to mention terrorism. Yes. I said to them, Israeli ambassadors find it very difficult to enter an American campus. Not a Palestinian activist. It's not a symbolic change. It is a profound change that should encourage us without being ignorant of the destruction on the ground,
1: of course. Which brings me back to Bernie Sanders. Not only does it make sense that by conviction he would be certainly less Zionistic than the others, but even were he somehow not true to his feelings the movement pushing him, all these young people voting for him, would dictate that he would have this more open-minded, more futuristic perspective.
2: Absolutely. And I think you hit on something that people tend to ignore. The current political elite in places like France and Germany, where I'm still very pro-Israeli and anti-BDS, and in America too, the current politicians are around the age of 35 to 45. And they're still behaving as the previous political elite. But behind them, those who are in their early 20s uh, have different expectations from politics and economics because of the crisis of 2008. And these expectations include also a different approach to Palestine. I would say even more. Mm. Palestine is an emblem for the change. That's why, you know, industrial action in Norway would be dawned by Palestinian flags. That's why people would talk about Palestine in Ferguson and even in Flint in this country. Without even knowing exactly the connection, people see Palestine as symbolism for exceptionalism, for oppression and an ongoing injustice. And many of them feel that they are also victims, and rightly so, of an ongoing injustice. And actually, academically, you know, or intellectually, I could say, that the victims of neoliberalism, of uh, free capitalism, and the victims of Zionism have a lot in common, and the systems that oppress them have a lot in common.
1: Yes. Jeff Halper has documented pretty well how a lot of the police departments in this country are being taught by the Israelis. (laughs) and,
2: And those in Brazil, very few people noted what has been done to the Tamils with the help of Israeli advisors in 2014. Because, you see, these are the historical destruction. From the Tamil points of view, Gaza was a distraction to the kind of actions that were taken against them. And Israeli advisors were very important in the kind of incremental genocide that was done to them. Of course, the Israelis had the know-how to do it. They were very effective. The advice to the Indians in Kashmir, I think, we need to do much more work on these connections, there's no doubt, because they can really enhance the struggle for a better world with Palestine as a real kind of case study and inspiration for the other struggles.
1: You just mentioned Norway. I was going to ask you why, in your opinion, Norway, Sweden, some of the Scandinavians seem to be more ahead of the curve. Is it yeah. more democracy? Is it a better education, better media? Why is it that the Zionist propaganda uh, juggernaut seems to have less of a grip on those countries?
2: Yeah, I think there's a difference, by the way, between them. If you start from the north and you go down to the south, it gets worse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Denmark, for instance, is not not, not a clearly pro-Palestinian community. Norway is a case in point, and the case of Sweden and Norway is not the same. Norway is a country that, despite phenomena like Quisling, a prime minister who collaborated with the Nazis and became synonymous mm-hmm. for collaboration, the vast majority of the people felt they were under harsh military occupation. And almost any activist on Palestine that you meet in Norway, and that, by the way, shows how anti-Semitism has nothing to do with this, mm. would tell you, we know what we suffered under five years of occupation. We cannot begin to imagine what it means to be under 50 years of occupation i think for them because they don't have the baggage that other europeans have occupation is occupation genocide is genocide ethnic cleansing which by the way was very ripe in the north of norway yes ethnic with the cleansing exactly mm-hmm. they know what they are and they didn't come to the conclusion that only mm-hmm. germans can do this to other people they know that anybody can do it to anyone and they see clearly the palestinians as victims Not of five years of these policies, but of hundreds of years of these policies. And it's very deeply rooted. It was very interesting. The Israelis went to PR people Mm. in Norway Mm. to help them brand Israel as a groovy place, as a good place. (laughs) And the Norwegians said to them in 2016, professionally they said to them, not ideologically, they said, we won't take your money. It would be a waste of money. (laughs) We (laughs) cannot brand you. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. Nothing to do with our (laughs) – and they told them, we're talking now as professionals. Yes. (laughs) In no way you cannot do it. You are the occupiers. You are the colonizers. You are the ethnic cleansers. Now, Sweden, I think, despite its kind of role in Second World War as a neutral country, was saving Jews. Mm -hmm. And the people – and we forget this chapter in history is very important to Sweden – The people who saved the Jews went to help the Palestinian refugees. And the most important among them was the Count Falk Bernadotte, Mm. who received a a peace prize for what he did to the Jews, helping them to run. And he was assassinated by the Zionist movement. Mm. And his crime was, he said that refugees should be allowed to go back home. That was his crime. That was his crime. And this is part of the Swedish legacy that explains why the Swedish foreign minister is the only one who calls a spade a spade when she said that the Israelis are assassinating children in the last three or four months, calling them terrorists and so on. There are historical reasons. And in fact, I think it's an effective solidarity movement. It should study each country to see exactly where the commonalities are, where the sympathy comes from, and so on. And there's still a lot to be done, actually, to make sure that the civil society one day, as in the case of South Africa, would drag, probably screaming, the political elites to take action.
1: One Norwegian activist we had on this show, he wasn't really sure why Norway was so special. But one thing he told me was that the media would not dare to lie to people about Palestine because Mm. people were just too informed, too too well-informed. And part of it might be the fact that in Norway... The media are subsidized by the government, regardless of ideological content.
2: But I'll tell you where it started. Mm. It really started, I forgot that chapter, which is very important. If you remember, after the first Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1978, even before 1982, the United Nations created a kind of United Nations force that was supposed to separate Israel and some of the Lebanese factions the major military component of the United Nations military force came from Norway, Sweden, Denmark. Mm. And most of these, I interviewed some of these uh, soldiers, I mean, not professionally, just talking to them. And they told me they went as Zionists and they returned as committed pro-Palestinians because they saw with their own eyes. And this is just, they didn't visit the West Bank or the Galilee. It was enough for them to see how the Israelis treated the people in southern Lebanon to become committed for the case of Palestine. So I think that's also an important part of this legacy. In fact, that is the model that later worked so well with the international solidarity movement. And in fact, that worried the Israelis much more than the BDS for a while. Young Europeans or young Americans like Rachel Corey, who are five or ten minutes within – A Palestinian area any Palestinian area between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean have no doubt morally where they stand Mm. and this is why you have this incredible phenomenon in Ben Gurion airport which is the only airport in Israel right? You can only enter Israel Mm. through the air Mm. when you leave the gate there are six to seven very conspicuous people of the security service and They are not profiling people with beards who look like Osama bin Laden, and they're not looking for terrorists. They have a very clear profile of how a young European who might be supporting the Palestinian cause by volunteering in a kindergarten, building a school, might look like. And these are the people they send back home. Some of my students are on a blacklist and cannot enter uh, Palestine because they're doing PhDs on Palestine. It's unbelievable. So knowledge is a powerful tool and changes people's minds and positions.
1: So this insecurity that you're documenting, describing, is really a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of strength.
2: No, it's not a sign of strength at all. It's a big question every citizen in the world should ask themselves. Do you mind living in a country that has its way only through force? Or would you like to have at least a modicum or a measure of morality injected into the policies of the people who represent you. And Israel has nothing to sell morally anymore. Probably never had. doesn't have anything today to sell
1: morally. One of the things it had was the story of the Holocaust, which was all yeah. too real for a long time. Absolutely. And perhaps these new generations are starting to decouple what happened to these victims in Europe from what's going on today.
2: Absolutely. They understand that you have to have a universal collective memory of the Holocaust. I think that's what they want, either as Germans or as Italians or as Americans. First of all, they saw other genocides happening after the Second World War. They saw practices against the Palestinians that reminded them of Nazi practices. And therefore... This whole manipulation of the Holocaust memory to justify Zionism is not working. It's just not working anymore.
1: There was a fantastic scene in a Yoav Shamir film called Defamation, where they showed these young Israelis, 13, 14-year-old, being transported to the Ukraine to one of the terrible death camps there where a lot of Jews were murdered. And there was an interesting disconnect there between the leaders of that excursion and the young people who were feeling at some level manipulated and they were not really connecting the way that their elders were elders trying, to, them. Yeah. trying to fanaticize them and say, look, this is what happens to Jews.
2: That's why the Israeli education system is rethinking the whole idea of compulsory trips of young Israelis they are. To, to, yeah, to the extermination camp. They thought they would come back convinced that right. Israel has the right to do anything. It wants to defend itself but this is not how they come back so that's very that, good to hear i didn't know yeah, that yeah yeah so they're rethinking it backfires mm-hmm. it backfires like the glit backfires the idea of bringing young american Jews to fall in love in israel and showing them the west bank and you don't fall in love in israel after a trip in the west bank even if it's totally orchestrated and guarded and supervised by israel these kids know too much mm-hmm. it's not a stupid generation This is a generation that is exposed to things, has sensitivities. And the Israelis are lost, by the way, for any campaign that can enlarge the moral electorate that is shrinking. And without that moral electorate, I think we have a chance to do something better.
1: They're swimming against the tide of history.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) I hope we are right in this.
0: Ilan Pappé is the author of many books on Palestine, including his seminal work, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. He is also professor with College of Social Sciences and International Studies at the University of Exeter, as well as director of the university's European Center for Palestine Studies. His latest book is called Israel and South Africa, The Many Faces of Apartheid. He spoke with Khalil Bendeep from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
1: that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.